the amount of profit that we're making as a wholesaler is 100% entirely based on how low we're able to buy that deal. What mm-hmm. we sell it at is going to be pretty consistent just based on the way that investors are going to run the numbers. You know, most investors yeah. are going to want to make at least 10, if not 15% on the deal. So you kind of kind of work the numbers backwards. And if you get a home run price, well, then you're going to get a home run assignment fee. For if sure. you barely get a discount, well, then you may only make a couple thousand or maybe you don't even have enough meat on the bone at all to mm-hmm. wholesale that deal. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. What's the real power of leverage? People think real estate is all about leveraging capital. Money is important, but what about the decisions we make? The things we do and don't do determine our success as investors. Choices and actions create success. Before we get to the bank, we make choices guided by mindset and by the things we do and don't know. If we want to succeed as investors, we need to leverage knowledge. We need to increase what we know so our actions pay bigger dividends. Join host Terry Schauer and Jean-Philippe Claude for conversations with leading experts in the real estate field. From mortgages to mindset and from macroeconomics to local market trends, grow your knowledge capital with us. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast where we seek advice to help us make better investing decisions. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, today we have our guest is David Dodge, full-time real estate investor from St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm uh, quite excited about our conversation because today we're going to focus a lot on wholesaling. And it's something that is common and people know about it. But here, for some reason in Quebec and Canada, like it's not done that much. And I was hoping to kind of hear from you. First of all, well, kind of like, how did you even get started in real estate? I've been full-time in real estate for almost eight years, going on eight years here in the next couple of months. But prior to being full-time in real estate, I was a passive investor for 10 years. I started at the age of 20 and uh, went full-time at the age of 30. So basically all through my 20s, I was super passive. I wasn't wholesaling back in my 20s at all. I was uh, just buy and hold, right? So okay. I basically just buy one a year. Uh-huh. Um, at the end of that 10-year period throughout my 20s, I had 12 properties. Two of those years, I got lucky and bought two in a year. But typically Yay. speaking, it was, yeah, it was just one a year. And, you know, during my 20s, while I was buying these rentals, I was paying full retail, getting 80% bank loans, putting down 20%. I often didn't have the 20%. So I'd borrow that from friends and family. In my late 20s, like 20, 29 you know, really even probably at the age of 30, I discovered direct to seller marketing. And I discovered that you don't need to, you know, find an agent and go directly to the MLS to find deals and that I could, I could send postcards and, you know, do lots of different types of marketing methods to find people that were motivated to sell and work directly with them. You know, since then over the last seven going on eight years, Uh, My partner, Mike, and I, we've wholesaled about 700 properties and we loved using the Burr method. We've transitioned, you know, from one a year, essentially to marketing, to wholesaling full-time. And about three, maybe four years ago, we transitioned again and back into the buy and hold. But now what we do is we use the Burr method to acquire Mm -hmm. rentals with very little and often no money out of pocket, Uh, but we still wholesale. 
So the beautiful thing about the wholesaling business is, you know, you can cherry pick. So it all starts with marketing. Mm -hmm. And then once you get a good deal on a property, you can determine what your exit strategy is going to look like. So for us, we essentially have three exits. Okay. The, The ideal exit would be to burr the property, which is buy it, rehab it, rent it, and then refinance all the private or hard money lenders out of the equation Mm -hmm. and own the asset, get it rented, of course. and Get it performing. And hold it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And hold it for a long term. That's the ideal thing, right? The other two exits that we will dabble with would be a fix and flip. And we're pretty picky and choosy on what we decide to flip. We don't want it to be, you know, too big of a project. We don't want it to be too small. We don't want it to be too far away. I mean, it's got to kind of fit some criteria for that to make sense. And then third and finally would be the wholesale. And the wholesale is really easy for us at this point because we've done hundreds of deals. Mm -hmm. And essentially the wholesale is the last option. It used to be the first option, but now it's the last option. We'll just mark it out a, a contract that we have, you know, with the seller if it doesn't mm-hmm. work for us and we'll just wholesale that deal. So that's typically, you know, that's basically kind of my history with investing in real estate. Just before we go any further, because we've used the term a lot and for us it's obvious, but can you just define what wholesaling is? Because there's listeners yeah. that may not know and I just don't want to have them confused too long. Of course. So wholesaling is getting a property under contract. So you're gaining control of it and you're getting what's called equitable interest in the property by having a contract to purchase it. And then from there, you'll either assign that contract to another investor for a profit, or we will simultaneously buy it and sell it in the same day, which is referred to as a double close. But essentially, it's not any different than you know what Walmart or Sam's Club or Costco or Target does, right? Yeah. So they buy all of these products. So I, I like to just use simple, simple products. So they buy in bulk and they resale. Yeah. To- so like let's let's just you know everybody has heard of Crest toothpaste, right? Pretty basic product. Well, Target and Walmart and Costco and all these big blocks often don't even buy the product, right? Instead, yeah. these companies will give the product to these big block stores. And the big block stores will mark those products up and sell those products. And then once those products are sold, the manufacturer or in real estate terms, the seller will get paid, but not prior. Right. And a lot of people, they don't really know that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we do the exact same thing, except for we don't have crest on our shelves. We have contracts to purchase properties. So once we have those contracts, we decide, hey, are we going to keep it? And then we'll figure out the financing and we'll close on it. Or the other option would be to wholesale it. And at that point, we just market the contract to purchase the property. So in theory, we're marketing that property. But I do want to highlight that you can't market a property that you don't own. So in order to make it legal, we market the contract to purchase Exactly. And that's, that's essentially what wholesaling is. It's buying low and it's selling high. And often we don't even need to buy, meaning we can just find a good deal. We can sell the contract to buy the property. Yep. And then instead of going and actually buying the property, we can just find somebody else that's interested in the deal. And we can, you know, basically say, Hey, you know, we'll step out of the way. We'll get out of the way. We'll give you our contract and you can step in and close and take it down, but you're going to have to pay us a finder's fee, which is going to look like an assignment. 
Or in some cases, if you're dealing with a certain buyer that isn't okay with an assignment, or maybe you don't want to disclose that you're making 20 or 30 grand to them, we can do what's called a double close. So we will line up both of the transactions on the same day and we will actually purchase the property, but we won't have to use any of our money. We can actually use our end buyer's money. Mm -hmm. And again, we're going to get out of the way and let them take that property Mm -hmm. and we're going to make a profit in the middle. And and just to clarify, so in in Quebec, it's changed a little bit. It's now harder to do the double close, but basically what it comes down to for anyone listening who doesn't know what it is, is that you put a property under contract, you prepare your financing, you literally go to the notary and close, and then Two hours later, you actually resell the property. Now, obviously, it's as David just mentioned, it's best to actually not have to do a financing and use the financing of the second buyer to be able to pay the seller. Now, in Quebec, they've changed the rules a little bit, and that's getting harder and harder, if not impossible. You still need to come up with the cash, which you could do with a private lender and literally borrow that capital for three days. And so it's buying a property- Or three hours. Or three hours. Yeah, depending on, you're right, depending on the speed of transit, and then resell it right after. After, so that you're not responsible for the property. It's literally yeah, no, you, a, you a transaction. The only, the only thing I would add to that is, is it's really going to depend on the title company, the closing attorney, and maybe even local laws to determine if you're going to need to go source the private or the hard money, or really it's yeah. really kind of referred to more as transactional funding to actually buy it before you sell it. But in my area, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, like you mentioned, you know, some title companies will require us to buy the property before we sell it. Others, if they get both sides of the transaction, meaning that yeah. you know we're going to buy the property at their title company, and then we're going to sell it at their title company. And the seller on the front side of that transaction, as well as the buyer on the back side of that transaction, we're all in the same location. They will sometimes let us use the end buyer's money. Okay. It doesn't always work out that way, but it does in my market, you know, pretty routinely. So anybody that's listening, you know, find out if your local title company or closing attorney will let you do that. And then also look at the local law. So you mentioned that it's getting more difficult to do that in your area. Again, it's going to depend a lot on, you know, the local laws, as well as the local title company or closing attorneys way in which they operate. Just out of curiosity, how do you set your wholesale fee? Is it kind of a nominal and, you know, whatever price you have it under contract and you just add 25K? How do you structure it? So it really depends on how good of a deal we get. So when it comes to wholesaling, we are essentially just deal finders. That's Mm -hmm. all we're really doing when we're wholesaling. We're marketing to sellers that have a presumed level of motivation. And the presumed level of motivation would be that we are going to come in and offer convenience to them in exchange for a discount. And the discount that we offer to the seller is going to vary, right? If they are super motivated, then we're going to try to get a bigger discount and make, you know, a bigger spread. If they're not super motivated, then we're going to try to get any discount that we can. And then when we take it to a cash buyer, somebody that's going to buy that deal from us, we have to leave meat on the bone, Mm -hmm. right? So let's just use simple math, right? If I have a property that, you know, is worth 200,000, but it needs, let's say, $60,000 worth of work, I would try to get that property under contract somewhere between 80 and a hundred thousand. When I get it under contract, let's say I get it at a hundred thousand. 
I can't go sell that to another investor for 140 because he or she would pay 140 and then put 60 in it. And then it would be worth 200. There wouldn't be any yeah. profit for them. Yeah. It'd be so worth as, market value. And you want to leave some meat on the bone. You got to leave meat on the bone. So yeah. to answer your question, what does that fee look like? How much can we make? Well, it depends entirely on how low we were able to buy the property because we have to leave meat on the bone. And the ARV is going to be pretty consistent amongst all the investors that look at it. Mm-hmm. And the repair estimate is also going to be pretty consistent. It may vary a little bit. But in this scenario, 200K ARV, which is the after repair value, $60,000 worth of repairs. You know, any investor that I know is going to typically want to make at least 20, if not 30,000 on that deal. So I would then, you know, be comfortable selling that deal at, let's say, 110,000. If I got it at 100, that's a $10,000 markup. But if I got that deal at 80,000, well, then I can still sell it at 110. The amount of profit that we're making as a wholesaler is 100% entirely based on how low we're able to buy that deal. What Mm -hmm. we sell it at is going to be pretty consistent just based on the way that investors are going to run the numbers. You know, most investors are going to want to make at least 10, if not 15% on the deal. So you kind of kind of work the numbers backwards. And if you get a home run price, well, then you're going to get a home run assignment fee. For sure. Barely get a discount. Well, then you may only make a couple thousand, or maybe you don't even have enough meat on the bone at all to Mm -hmm. wholesale that deal. So it kind of varies. Hopefully, I answered your question. You totally did. And actually, makes me think of so that's when you're able to have it under contract. And by definition, you need to have a fair amount of volume in finding distressed sellers who want to get rid of their property. So I was kind of hoping we could shift the conversation to the upstream and to your marketing, because I'm sure you have a rather large marketing budget in order to find all these, these deals off market. So can you kind of walk us through like, What's your structure and how do you, yeah, how sure. do you market? So my marketing budget is not as large as one would think. We used to spend 10, 12,000 a month on marketing. Right now, we probably scaled that back to maybe around three or 4,000 a month. So we obviously still have a budget for marketing um, and it's several thousand a month, but it's not really that crazy. I mean, I have friends that spend 40, 50, 60,000 a month on their marketing. Now they're obviously doing a lot more deals than we are, but at this point, we're not really looking to go wholesale a bunch of deals. We have a simple motto or saying in our office and it's keep the best, wholesale the rest. So we're really looking for deals with our marketing efforts that we can buy and hold, use the burst strategy or fix and flip. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then we wholesale the deal. So, you know, with that being said, our buy box, our criteria is, is pretty narrow. So in order to be efficient with our marketing, we're not just spraying marketing out the door in neighborhoods that we don't want to buy because that doesn't make sense. We're only marketing in the neighborhoods and in the areas that we want. So once we come across those deals, if it's a good deal, we'll keep it. Again, we'll add it to the portfolio of rentals via Burr or we will fix and flip it and sell it for a profit. But if it doesn't meet the criteria that we have, then we wholesale the deal. So it kind of varies a little bit, you know, depending on what we're doing. But yes, we do have a marketing budget to answer your question. It's a couple thousand a month. It's mostly mailers. You know, we do a lot of things. We cold call, we cold text, we send direct mail. We do drive around and do what's referred to as driving for dollars to create lists. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we will knock on doors. We will put door hangers or sticky notes on people's you know, doors or windows if we can't reach them. Direct mail is a great method. We've done bandit signs in the past. We've done radio and billboards in the past. A lot of our leads come from our network, yeah. just from being in the business for several years. People know mm-hmm. who we are. Agents know that we will buy deals cash. And then again, we will also buy properties from other wholesalers. Now, when we're doing that, there's not typically a ton of meat on the bone to turn around and re-wholesale that deal. I've done it. It's mm-hmm. possible. Whoa. But ideally, you know, if you're buying from a wholesaler, they're going to leave enough meat on the bone for you, but they're going to take the rest of that meat off the bone when they wholesale it to you. So trying to wholesale a deal from a wholesaler or daisy chain is not typically the best approach. But again, if you are a buy and hold investor like myself or looking to do a fix and flip, you know, you can piggyback on the efforts of these other wholesalers, these other mm-hmm. investors in your marketplace. Yeah. As you're mentioning that this example, I'm trying to think of like situations where you could still be interested in buying from essentially like two wholesalers. And if you own the property across the street, and this is the adjacent one, it would still make sense. Even if you pay a little bit more of a premium, it still makes sense for you to acquire that property. Even though, as you said, by the time you buy it, you're paying a price that's closer to the market value. And hence, there's not that much meat on it. It really depends on your risk tolerance, right? Mm -hmm. So if you own the one across the street, you're going to be more willing to pay more for that property because you're going to want to keep the neighborhood up, right? And keep your eye on things. If you're like me, I don't really care if I own one across the street. If I can't get a 20% discount on it, I'm not interested. I mean, that's a great point. And I'm glad you brought that up. I would have to say, and I'm not arguing by any means, I'm agreeing with you, but I would say that really, really matters. And it depends more so on the risk tolerance, you know? So you've probably heard this before, but you make your money when you buy and you get paid when you sell. And, you know, I learned that lesson about seven and a half years ago when I went full-time in this business. And I learned that if I buy properties at discounts, I can really limit or mitigate my risk. If I'm paying retail or near retail, I'm going to have a lot of risk. But if I buy a property at, let's say, 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, I can screw up and I can still make money or at, at a minimum break even. So personally, you know, if a property is across the street from one that I already own, of course, I'm going to be extra interested in seeing it. But if I can't get at least a 15 or 20% discount on it, I'm not, I'm not going to no. typically be interested in it. Yeah. No, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Like we make money when we buy. And uh, that's why sometimes I feel like we're not making enough deals, but I'm also very picky in making sure that we're buying at enough of a discount that we can do whichever mistake we want. We will have enough exit strategies, basically. Yeah. We can just keep it for ourselves. We can resell it as is. We can do a burr. We can so many ways to skin that cat. And so the key is always how low did you buy versus the market and versus what's it's worth to a retail buyer. Really, really important. All right. Now, moving on. So you also flip a little bit. Yeah. You know, we typically have one or two going at a time. We don't do a ton, you know, so I would say we're doing anywhere from four to eight a year. Now, when you say flip, the way I interpret that or define that would be we buy it to fix it and sell it. Correct. Right? Yes. That's the exit that we decide from the beginning yeah. and we stick to it. Now, mm-hmm. we may buy a property to burr and then we go over budget on the rehab and decide, hey, 
It's, we're going to have sell 10 or 15 grand in it. So we'll sell it. So we'll probably do another couple of those a year as well. Mm-hmm. But going in and having the mindset of, hey, let's buy it, fix it and sell it for a profit. Yeah, somewhere around six a year. So not, not okay. a terribly amount, not a terribly large amount. And the reason is, is we're pretty picky. Like you had mentioned, you know, we don't want to do something that's an hour away. We don't want to do something that's $150,000 in rehab if we can't no. make a good profit on it. We don't want to do super small properties because there's not going to be a ton of buyers for them. So, you know, we're looking for good properties that don't need a ton of work that we can get a good deal on that are local and they're not too big of a property. They're not too small of a property. So we obviously have criteria that we have to meet. No, but, uh, sure. We do do some fix and flips as well. The fix and flips are fun. I really mm-hmm. enjoy the fix and flips. I love throughout like the whole conversation conversation is that you stay very consistent with what you're good at and not to deviate. And I feel like we see so many real estate investors are like, oh, and that would be fun. And let's do a bit of this and a little bit of that. It's like, no, pick one lane, pick one method, and then just go the whole way because otherwise you spread yourself too thin. That's right. That's exactly right. We got to stay consistent. I have been chasing shiny objects on and off in my life for many, many years. And I'll tell you, whenever I chase a shiny object, nine times out of 10, I get burned. At this point, you know, I know what I'm good at and I know what I enjoy to do. And I try to focus my time and energy on, you know, maintaining those projects for the most part. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is a very good observation. And again, we have three exits, buy and hold, And if we do, we're going to typically use the burr, not always, but most of the time, fix and flip or wholesale. And that's really it at this point. Okay. As we're getting towards the end here, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a program that teaches people how to buy rentals, how to do it with you know little to no money using the burr method. And that's really my focus and passion at this point. If people are interested to learn more about me or the Burr Method or my program, they can go to BurrMethodMastery.com. And that's Burr with four R's. So B-R-R-R-R MethodMastery.com. All right. Beautiful. If anyone's interested, please go and visit it. Hey, David, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for uh, all the insight today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure on my end as well. I appreciate you. And hopefully we were able to share a little bit of value with your audience today. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. To anyone listening, thank you for supporting us. As usual, please share it with a friend, subscribe to the show. It always helps. And uh, we want to spread the knowledge so as many people can start investing in real estate. On this note, thank you very much, David. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.